It's the summer of 2006. Nicole Caldwell has recently graduated from a prestigious journalism school and landed herself a fancy job at a storied magazine. On her first day, she walks into the magazine's Manhattan office and she takes her first step into the professional life of a journalist. She finds her desk and then her boss hands her the essential guide to nailing the mag's signature style. They give you like a 30-page printout with like a staple in it of all synonyms for genitalia and sex. Pretty much right away, it was clear that this wasn't your standard cubicled workplace. You would go in to like ask somebody a question and they, like the art director would have like a photo zoomed in so, so, so many times because you're not allowed to show any pre-cum in the magazine. So she's like photo, like just editing out these little droplets, like any of like the hard and fast rules that like you really would not be able to get away with in virtually any office culture didn't exist at Playgirl. Playgirl magazine. It had been around for more than 30 years by the time Nicole showed up and took the job as managing editor. And at a place like Playgirl, editing out droplets of cum was just the tip of the iceberg. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Palanen. In the summer of 1973, 49 years ago, Playgirl, the magazine for women, printed their first images of full frontal male nudity. Today, we'll get into how Playgirl magazine spent almost half a century in pursuit of one of life's biggest questions. What do women want? Should be easy, right? Right? After the break, hot men inside. Great. Okay, let's lose the towel, please. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right, I'm opening the plastic packaging. Something very special arrived in the mail for me a few weeks ago. It was packaged discreetly, double-wrapped in opaque plastic. Oh, my. Oh, my. All right. This is a lot of advertising, a lot of, like, health tips, a lot of, like... I have in my hands the July of 1973 copy of Playgirl. Radical breakthrough in sex therapy. Okay, design and living. 
No dicks. No dicks in sight, though. It's a lot of... Uh, Since its publication, it's Playgirl of, magazine has had one big, throbbing selling point. Okay, here we go. Wow. We've got our centerfold. All right. Full frontal male nudity. In this issue, the centerfold is actor George Maharis. In the 70s, he was best known for his roles in Westerns. Um, And George is here at the horse stables. He's posing with the horse. He's got his, like, he's, like, casually raising his arm. Like, you know, he still has his thigh at an angle, so you can't see everything. But you see just, like, the teeniest sliver of a penis. (laughs) I gotta say, by 2022 standards, I found the whole thing pretty tame. It's really, this is really... It's all very coy, Playgirl. All very coy. Forgetting Sarah Marshall has more dick in it than this issue of Playgirl. But when Playgirl magazine first hit stands, this teeny tiny sliver of cowboy penis was revolutionary. Well, here she is, Sarah Purcell, American woman, out to pick up her first copy of Playgirl magazine. In Playgirl's early years, press coverage was skeptical. Publicly, some women expressed tentative excitement. Like this one reader, a host of NBC's panel show, Real People. Now I want you to know that I'm as liberated as the next person. It's just that I've never bought a nudie magazine before. And of course, the main attraction, the Playgirl Centerfold Man of the Month. And the centerfolds were a hit. Playgirl's entire first print run, 600,000 copies, sold out completely in just about a week. Is it, um, excuse the expression, hot magazine? It's a hot magazine, especially this issue. This has got tushes in it. Why do you think women like this magazine? Uh, maybe for the long articles, I don't know. Playgirl launched right in the midst of a cultural and sexual awakening. A historic vibe shift, if you will. Roe v. Wade had just enshrined women's right to an abortion, at least for the time being. The pill was becoming widely accessible, and feminism's second wave was crashing over America. All this meant there was a new, thirsty, untapped market for male nudes. This new class of sexually empowered straight women. One Playgirl exec went on Real People to talk about the magazine's mission. We are a part of what we'll call not a part of, a leader in the sexual revolution for women. We're the first publication that came out that said to a woman, uh, you can buy a magazine that has a male nude and not be ashamed to buy it. From the beginning, the magazine's leadership was clear. Playgirl's goal was to give straight women what they wanted. All they had to do was figure out what that was. Scott Daly works as a carpenter in New York City, but today he's Scott Daly, December centerfold. That's great. Okay, let's lose the towel, please. As far as uh, any kind of art direction or any of that creative direction, it was pretty much just me. David Vance is a photographer who freelanced for Playgirl for more than a decade, starting in the mid-70s. The team at Playgirl was trying to figure out what women wanted to see, and they were regularly leaving it up to people like David, who had his own theory. I think women aren't really interested in, in, in seeing the goods so much as, you know, fantasizing about the, the person. 
The photos he took for the magazine reflected that idea. Instead of showcasing in-your-face full frontal nudity, David wanted to do something more subtle. First, he'd recruit a model. And it wasn't through like legitimate sources like modeling agencies. <laughs> I think at, the, at that point, it was like, who's willing to get naked? Turns out, walking around LA, it wasn't that hard to find people down to bear it all. And once David found the right guy, he'd come up with a concept and set the scene for his story. And we went out to the Everglades and we actually put up a tent and had a campfire and was like a whole like camping story. And this guy alone out in the, in the woods. This camping story David's describing is from the November 1974 issue of the magazine. So you see him in the lake and then you just see him smoking a cigarette. A broad-shouldered brunette with shaggy hair, dappled in golden morning light, concentrates on wringing out a sponge as he bathes for anyone who might enjoy catching a glimpse. Lots of these shots are like that where he's not really uh, engaging with the viewer. He's just kind of having somebody, allowing the person to look at him without his knowledge. I think that's sexy. I think that that to me was what I thought that uh, women looking at this would enjoy. What David was trying to do was capture the female gaze. At the time, nudie mags for men were widely available. There was Playboy, Penthouse, Esquire, all brimming with pictures of women arranged exactly as men wanted to see them. Playgirl wanted to do the opposite and present tantalizing male nudes to women. Circulation reached a peak of about 1.5 million issues a month by the late 70s. It seemed like a simple success story. Horny women had needs, and Playgirl satisfied them. But as subscriptions rose, Playgirl realized they actually had caught the attention of an entirely different audience. There was never a specific conversation saying, you know, we're gearing this towards uh, females of a certain age or demographic. I, uh, I never had a conversation. That was um, already understood that that was supposedly their audience. Mm -hmm. And why do you say supposedly? Yeah, well, we, we all know who was looking at this <laughs> because of the prison subscriptions. If you missed that, David just said that they knew who Playgirl's audience was because of all the prison subscriptions. Which, I guess, is his way of saying... They had a, a, a large gay audience. Maybe they had lots of women as well, I don't know. After the break, the enduring power of Playgirl for boys. And what that means for the future of the magazine. Welcome back. Before the break... Playgirl burst onto the scene by taking a gamble on female desire, and they struck gold. But almost as soon as it began its quest to define what women want, Playgirl attracted an unintended audience. I think for, I think for a lot of gay men, that was their first exposure to a naked man, honestly. This is the unofficial keeper of gay Playgirl history. He'd prefer to stay anonymous, so we're going to call him by the name of his website, Black Dog. They'd find their mother's playgirl, or you could go to the supermarket and buy it, although it was always a little stressful and scary to do that. Black Dog runs an online archive of playgirl photos and regularly hears from readers who remember their favorite spreads. 
I think everybody has different fan favorites. There definitely were a bunch of really popular ones. And for me, like Christopher Atkins was a big one. Brian Rossini, um, the intention was to be tasteful. That's part of what I liked about it. What Black Dog has learned through keeping this archive is that Playgirl didn't just happen to have a gay audience. At a certain time, it was a real coming-of-age staple for young gay men. He gets emails all the time, like this one from one reader. When I was a kid in the 70s, I used to go to the corner drugstore, stand by the magazine rack. I would grab a Playgirl, shove a sports magazine in front of it, and head to the counter and pray the guy did not look at me while I was checking out. At home, I would lust after the guys while wishing I was an adult so I could meet them. You probably know a lot of them turned out to be gay. At a time when it was especially dangerous to be out and queer, Playgirl helped young gay men explore. I used to bring it to the register and say I was taking a human sexuality course in college and buying a Playgirl was homework. I wonder if anyone actually believed me. While trying to figure out female desire, Playgirl had inadvertently hit on a marketing jackpot. But even as presumably gay readers made up a significant portion of Playgirl's audience... There was a huge amount of denial around it. Nobody wanted to talk about that because that's not what it was a magazine for women. That's what it said. They really tried not to address that at all if possible. Playgirl drew a hard line. This was the 80s. The AIDS crisis compounded existing homophobia. And Playgirl employees worked overtime to play down their gay audience in the press. From the beginning, Playgirl insisted, our male readership can't be gay. Most of them are married. This was a magazine for suburban housewives after all. Okay, well, I guess the housewives stopped pulling their weight because by 1983, Playgirl circulation had dropped by 60%. And if Playgirl held a mirror up to the freewheeling, sex-positive 70s, its sales started to reflect the conservative 80s, too. An estimated 10,000 strong with anti-pornography signs and prayers. The issue is pornography. It is the stuff that is disturbing the minds of our children. It's not... Neither our Constitution... Our courts, our people, nor our respect for common decency will allow this trafficking in obscene material to continue. Your industry's days are numbered. In 1986, President Ronald Reagan ordered an investigation by the Attorney General's office into the potential connection between pornography and sexual violence. It culminated in a nearly 2,000-page document called the Mies Report. Henry Hudson, who has been uh, leading the Attorney General's Commission on Pornography as its chairman. Mr. Hudson will be presenting the final report of the commission to Mr. Meese. The investigation failed to prove that porn makes people criminals. But it was still a bad look for softcore titles like Playgirl. The Federal Commission on Pornography threatened to publish the names of any retailers that continued to sell erotic magazines. So massive chains like CVS and 7-Eleven ripped Playgirl and all nudies from their shelves. What followed for Playgirl was 20 long, painful years of stagnation. In response to the buttoned-up conservatism of the 80s, Playgirl tried painting itself as a sophisticated women's magazine, taking out full frontal nudity. Sales got worse. They tried putting full frontal back in, but sales stayed down. 
They stayed down when Brett Michaels' 1993 cover promised 25% more erotic pages. They even stayed down when Brian Austin Green's 1997 cover showcased his bare chest and a little silver chain. And with Y2K approaching, it appeared that nothing could save Playgirl. Not full frontal nudity, not tasteful maturity, not frosted tips or jet skis or 1999's Men of Australia, nude. That's when a young, bright-eyed journalist walked in the door. I saw an ad on Craigslist for Playgirl and applied as mostly a joke. Nicole Caldwell, who we met at the very beginning of the episode, first stepped foot in the Playgirl offices in 2006. At this point, sales had been down for a long time. But the team behind the magazine really appealed to her. It was these ladies in their like late 20s, early 30s with tattoos and piercings, like just very progressive and unexpected. If Nicole applied as a joke, she quickly changed her mind about the magazine. And even though Playgirl had been around for over three decades at this point, Nicole noticed that in terms of print publications focused on female desire, it was still pretty unique. Even as a very progressive, um, what I would consider sex-positive woman at that time, it was a striking moment to have such a an unfiltered, direct view of the male body. Like, literally, you've got Greek statues, you've got health textbooks, and, like, what else is there? Like, you know? So when she took the job, she had big dreams for what Playgirl could be. I liked the Playboy model. I wanted Playgirl to be able to be a bit more serious. I would have loved to see more diversity in the photo sets and different kinds of photographers and different kinds of people, just more like hard-hitting journalism. Instead, the magazine was printing headlines like Drop Dead Gorgeous, Men of Mortuaries, and Campus Hunks, the Hottest Frat Guys of 2008, which features more pairs of cargo pants than I think I've ever seen in my life. The era I was at the magazine was like around the same time Sex and the City was happening when like, Feminism meant acting as shitty as men, right? So, like, Playgirl was also doing some of that. Like, hey, girls, like, let's let's objectify this beefcake. It was just, it, it was feeling very, it felt like a caricature of itself. In their struggle to stay relevant, Playgirl was trying to keep up with the feminism du jour while also establishing what Nicole calls a wink-wink relationship with its male audience. It was getting, like, gayer and gayer without admitting it. And so... You were alienating the women. Still, Nicole kept moving up the ladder, kept pitching ideas for what women actually wanted. But she felt like no matter how high she climbed, it didn't make a difference. Even as editor-in-chief, I was not, like, at the executive level making decisions. It was all men up there doing that. The real power at Playgirl wasn't Nicole's. The magazine had billed itself as entertainment for women— I mean, that was literally their tagline. But it wasn't run by women. From the beginning, Playgirl was owned by men. That was the case during the sexual revolution, during the Reagan administration, even through the era of frosted tips and waxed chests. We were an all-female staff. We had 
female interns. We had, um, you know, the art director was a woman. I'm a woman. The associate editors were all women. Um, and we would sit in a conference room with like big wigs who would tell us that like what what we were suggesting for the magazine was not what women wanted, which is just like, I mean, backwards for every reason that you can imagine. From the very start, Playgirl tried to capitalize on the commercial opportunity of male nudity without really engaging with the full range and depth of women's sexuality. Their question wasn't, who are our readers and how do we cater to them? I was being tasked with, like, what do women want? And, like, God, (laughs) like, I don't know, like, everything possible, like, everything you could ever imagine, and it's different for every woman. So, like, the unsolvable riddle, I think. Finally, in 2015, after more than 40 years of chasing the female gaze, Playgirl's print run ended. Everything else was staying competitive and changing, and, you know, Playgirl was a bit of a dinosaur not keeping up with the times. Still, Nicole doesn't feel that the Playgirl experiment was a failure. One thing that, like, is extremely empowering about Playgirl and Playgirl's history is that it gave women permission to look in the first place, which is something that, like, what a shameful, what a shameful thing that, like, women have never been given that permission. Giving women permission to look. Much more achievable than trying to figure out what gets every straight woman in America hot and bothered. And I think much more radical. It's not just about getting women to buy something. It's about shifting power. Giving women sexual autonomy, sexual authority. Even for as imperfect as Playgirl was and as complicated as it was and and how limiting it could be and frustrating, like, you know, that, like, I almost get chills even just, like, talking about that. Like, to be able to believe in that sort of a mission and to be knowing that, like, for every issue we put out, there was some woman who was going to pick it up for the first time and feel like she was accessing something that she had never been allowed to access. Now, you might be thinking... All this over some oiled-up dudes with their wangs out? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I'm bummed that Playgirl couldn't manage to stay in print, couldn't hold on to its shelf space alongside the Playboys and the Hustlers and the many other smutty mags that cater to men. Even with its problematic history, at least Playgirl was on the shelf at all. Now, obviously, in the age of the internet, our pornography options are much more abundant. So who knows if Playgirl in print could have survived Pornhub's popular with women tab. But I do wonder if Playgirl also encouraged women to explore what they wanted, regardless of whether they found that in the pages of the magazine. If it, in some part, paved the way for sexy tumblers, smutty fan fiction, and other erotica made for women by women. If, in giving women permission to look, it also empowered them to pursue their horniness. Playgirl may not have cracked what women want, but I'm pretty confident women can crack that one for themselves.
Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Laura Newcomb. Next week, we are the world, we are the children, we are talking about the infamous 1985 mega concert, Live Aid. I was uh, in shock how little they knew about a place like Ethiopia. People felt like it's just a land of uh, dry grass, uh, maybe some game animals, and uh, the people are just, you know, some tribal people. The rest of our team is producer Sarah Craig. Our associate producers are Julie Carley and Ramoy Phillip. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Kelly Prime and Andrea B. Scott. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Hansdale Shee. Original music by Sax Kicks Av, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Charmian Carl, Jess Ann Collins, Sharon Morrison, Chadwick Roberts, and to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Han, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, why don't you rate the show five stars? Come on, don't be shy. You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. The first time you go to a Playgirl photo shoot, you don't know where to look. It's like very, very overwhelming. And, you know, your third year in the company, this is like, oh gosh, like how long is it going to take for this dude to get hard? Like, I really want to get out of here. 